Stuart Kent Brigham, SKB, is very similar to mm-hmm. Sarah Jessica Parker, SJP. So if you ever kind of want to make that something, you know, yeah. just start calling you SKB, Sarah I think Jessica. that could go really far, especially in like the, the female <laughs> contingent of listeners. Yeah. Kind of like uh, Williams is now a, a big thing. Just, yeah, setting the internet on fire. <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders, the the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Mm -hmm. Matthew Watto, ignoring Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Expertly. Expertly so. (laughs) SKB. Uh, Dr. Gina Simoncini is is nicknaming Stuart SKB. We'll see if that has legs. Hi, Gina. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we are so happy to have you on the show. And uh, Dr. Paul Williams, you are you here? Yeah, kind of like the Miranda of the group, I feel like. <laughs> <Miranda>. <laughs> okay, this is now a Sex in the City. Uh, Stuart, did you want to read uh, our... Sure? Yeah, can we fulfill our legal obligations? Probably not, but we'll try. So the Curbsiders <laughs> podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only, and talk, topics discussion might use to solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any d- diseases or conditions. Pretty much we aren't responsible if you screw up. You should always do your homework and let us know when you're wrong or when we're wrong, rather. I don't care when you're wrong. Anyways, anything else? We do. It's about medical education. Yeah. Yes. Thank thank you. Thank you, Stuart. We we care. (laughs) All right. Legally, though. Stuart, I believe we had some listener feedback. It looks like this is a pretty long one. Uh, You could could read the highlights. I'll I'll leave it up to you to do the editing. (laughs) I'm going to try to edit it on the fly, only because it's like five pages long. Thanks a lot, Matt. Okay. So uh, I'm just going to go right into it. We've got some listener feedback. <laughs> it says, uh, not sure if this is where to ask a question. Probably not, but we're going to do it anyways. Okay, so your podcast is just so helpful for my practice. See, no question, podcast, positively improve, patient care, blah, 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 doing better. Okay, patients feel great. Okay. Oh, here we go. Fibromyalgia episode actually got me enthused to see these sometimes heart sink patients. Check out the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Chronic Disease Program, great review, and almost cookbook approach to fibromyalgia. Yes, I am a fanboy. Flew out to Vancouver. Wait a second. He's got like multiple open parentheses closed. (laughs) This is just driving me nuts. Okay, we're going to skip forward a little bit. Okay, here we go. How about the Curbsiders is the Paris Review of medical podcasts. Have you ever listened to Paris Review? No. I am literally reading this letter right now, and you've made it incomprehensible. (laughs) It's in front of me, and you're actually undoing the sense that it made in my head. Let me me summarize for the audience. It's a rural physician uh, in family practice, and he said he is very grateful for the free medical education resource that we provide. And he was also asking us if we had a way to get around a lot of the articles that he doesn't have institutional access to them. Is there any free resources we can recommend? I, I've always worked for big institutions, so I, I generally have access through the institution to a lot of the articles that, uh, that I come up on PubMed. So I don't really have a great answer for him for that. Uh, Paul or Stuart, I'm not sure if you have a workaround there. A lot of times, a lot of times people still have alumni accounts at their, you know, medical school or their undergrad, which, a lot of times we'll still, you know, extend institutional access. That's a good idea. 
I think we're going to go with that as our answer. So this is this was a letter from uh, John, who is a he is in rural family practice. And John, uh, Doctor Simoncini says that you can you can try to go to your alumni association, and ask them if there's a way that you can still access things. Um, that sounds good. Okay. Okay. And I give the letter a C minus for grammar. <laughs> Sorry, John. A uh, quick announcement: uh, We are. Hiring department chairs for Cashlack Memorial. So what does that mean? It means we're looking for other great uh, specialists, subspecialists to come and join our faculty. We have only appointed one department chair so far, Dr. Joel Toff. He's our chair of nephrology. But seriously, what I'm asking for, if you know dynamic, entertaining, inspiring speakers from your own institution, please send them to the show. Represent your institution with with uh, your best speakers. Uh, we would we are always looking for great guests. And at this point, I think we should do some picks of the week. You're not Is there gonna... music? <laughs> There's no? music. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I I'm going to start off this week, and uh, I don't know why, but I'm going to start off instead of Paul. And uh, we had a listener email, not the one that we just read, but another listener email asking about productivity. And I think it's probably, it sounds like we're more productive. Uh, this listener thought we were more productive than we probably really are. Mm, uh, I not. would, what I would recommend to this listener, there's a couple books that I read in the productivity realm, and I'll kind of give you them in order. Uh, the Four Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss was, was very good. Deep Work by Cal Newport, also very good. And the other one was is The One Thing. It's by, the author's name is Keller, as in Keller Williams Real Estate. He's the, uh, I, th- I believe, the founder of that company. But all three of those books are excellent on sort of talking about how to structure your time, also how to protect your time. And and then finally, I mean, my wife pretty much uh, does everything around the house and is just like spoils me with time. So I I hopefully you have a great partner who helps you out the way that I do. Um, so you're recommending your wife your wife to the listeners? No, no, the books were my recommendation, but also you should pick <laughs> a a partner who is very supportive of your career. A plus plus. <laughs> <laughs> I was not <laughs> suggesting that my wife is property. Um, if it, yeah, just Gina. stop now, Matt. Okay, just Gina. Gina, what's your pick of the week? Uh, her Yelp reviews are His fantastic. <laughs> Gina, what's your pick of the week? Um, so I'm new at this, but I'm super excited about the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh yeah, I'm pretty, 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 pretty excited. <laughs> Yes. So uh, starts, it starts uh, Sunday, October 1st. I, I, I hate to ask or I, I hate to look square. What is Curb Your Enthusiasm? Wow. Uh, no, it's that was that was an intentional pause of uh, <laughs> looking at SKB uh, in, incredulously. So have you heard of Seinfeld, SKB? Yes. OK, so the co-creator of Seinfeld, Larry David created a similar sort of uh, program that is basically the best of George. Oh, it's on HBO. The character was based off of him, yeah. That's why I'd never watch it. I don't have HBO. I'm poor. <laughs> I think the first few seasons might be available with Amazon Prime if you have that. They they have some of the older HBO series, but I, I, you'd have to check me. There was a time where you could see it on there. 
I'll go back and watch a few episodes, and maybe uh, next time we record, I'll let you know what I thought. Okay, Stuart? Okay, uh, so my pick of the week is this book here. It's called On Doctoring. It, it looks backwards to you guys. Um, this was a... What, you don't like it? No! No. Oh, why? Tell me. <laughs> because that's the free book that you get when you get your white coat with everyone. Who reads that book? Well, here's the thing. I, I never read it until just a few weeks ago. <laughs> uh-huh. I actually like it. It's not bad. Okay. So read your free book. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. I, I think that's been recommended by a past guest on the show. I can't remember who, though. Might've, I don't remember. It might have been Angelica Zen. She recommended something similar to that. Anyway. No, that was on being a doctor, maybe. Yeah, anyway. it, it it was on... Uh, on No, How, how doctors, doctors Think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. I've got that book, too. Yeah. That was, that one was not free, Gina. I paid money for that one. Good, <laughs> wow. hard cash. Yes. Okay. Thank you. When you have five kids, you take all the free things that you can get, <laughs> and you just eat it up. Eat it up. I'm impressed with the number of doctory books that you guys read. Don't you get sick <laughs> of reading doctor stuff and need to, you know, diversify? I do. Yes, I do. I haven't read mm. a doctoring book no. in quite a while. Nope. That's all I read. That's all I do. <laughs> I'm impressed, SKB. <laughs> Mm. okay i think it's sticking i also never lie i'm just gonna keep repeating it (laughs) (laughs) the nickname's gonna stick skb all right paul my pick of the week i I think is going to be the darren aronofsky movie mother which is in theaters now i'm not i can't say i'm recommending it i just need everyone to watch it so i have someone to talk about it with it has It has the coveted, I think, F minus score on cinema score. Um, wow. No one leaves the movies liking it, except for me. I really, I, I genuinely enjoyed it, but it is almost universally hated. And I just, I need someone who didn't hate it to talk about it with. So if all of our listeners go out and watch what is a really tough and brutal movie that no one seems to enjoy. I would, I would recommend yeah. it highly. Why does so, it have an exclamation point after the title? Uh, for emphasis, Gina. <laughs> <laughs> hey, PNW. <laughs> so mother by darren aronofsky thank you for the fantastic recommendations did, did you see uh it paul was that any good no not yet okay all right any of you guys see it i'm i'm just gonna go ahead and set up the show Stuart. i know you're trying right, to open right. a new thread of conversation <laughs> but uh we're gonna we're just gonna move on uh i've uh i've seen the original tv movie and it's 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 terrifying at least when i was eight when i originally watched it <laughs> It's okay. not good. <laughs> okay. So this is a episode a little bit out of the uh, ordinary for us. We we did a medical education episode about a year ago with Dr. Robert Centaur. Tonight, we are doing another medical education episode with Dr. Philip A. Masters, MD. He's the Vice President of Membership and International Programs at the American College of Physicians and an adjunct professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He received an MD degree from the University of Pennsylvania and completed a residency in internal medicine at John Hopkins Medical Institutions. He is board certified in internal medicine and a fellow of the American College of Physicians. Following completion of residency training, he served as a chief resident at Pennsylvania State College of Medicine, where he subsequently joined the faculty with an academic focus in medical education. He was director of the third-year internal medicine clerkship and served as a president of the Clerkship Directors in Internal Medicine, the National Association of Undergraduate Medical Educators. He also served as vice chair of medical education for the Department of Medicine and chair of the Division of General Internal Medicine at Penn State. 
He has been on the inaugural council of the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine, the organization of five groups overseeing medical education and internal medicine. And since joining ACP in 2011, he has served as the editor-in-chief of the Medical Knowledge Self-Assessment Program, better known as MCSAP or MKSAP, depending on who you talk to. And also, I Am Essentials, which is a series of books for medical students. His current responsibilities include oversight of all member-related activities and initiatives of the college, as well as the engagement of ACP with the global internal medicine community. He continues to practice ambulatory internal medicine and teach medical residents at the University of Pennsylvania. And we are thrilled to bring you this conversation with expert medical educator, Dr. Philip A. Masters. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. This well, is hello, your, Matt. Hello, Stuart. Hi. This, this is your host, Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, here with multiple co-hosts. And uh, let's, let's go around. Stuart? Hello, this is uh, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Paul? I don't like this new format. This is, this is <laughs> <laughs> okay. Seems a little contrite. Hello? Hi, guys. It's Gina Simoncini. Hi, Gina. Thank you. <laughs> Paul, Paul has to be difficult. And with us is Dr. Phil Masters from the ACP. Hi, Dr. Masters. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's a great honor to be here. Thank you. And uh, I had mentioned this to you ahead of time, but uh, for for on air, once we do our initial introductions, we like to just go by first name. So is it okay if we call you Phil just for simplicity on the show? Absolutely. Please okay. Do. Well, the first question that we always like to ask is if if you had to describe yourself as a one liner, what would that sound like? Okay. Uh... I guess the best way I can put it together is I'm a 60-year-old guy married, who's a general internist, married to another general internist, uh, but I have a 24-year-old son who has zero interest in medicine, <laughs> uh, but someone with a, a, a deep passion for internal medicine uh, and also for the education of the next generation of physicians. So this is kind of one of uh, Paul's favorite questions. I know he's going to ask it, so I'm just going to ask it ahead of him. So <laughs> if there's a book that, that you had to pick as something that you would recommend that every physician would, would, would or should read, what book would that be and why? Uh, I'll, I'll actually narrow it down a little bit. I, I think the book that every internist should read, in addition to every physician should read, uh, and it's not even really a, a, a readable book, but it's the quotable Osler. Uh, Mark, Mark Silverman is the editor of that, and it's a compendium of uh, really uh, prescient and pertinent uh, quotes and statements by William Osler. Uh, and even though all these things are over a century old, they really capture, I think, much of what is the essence of internal medicine and actually what is really key to practicing internal medicine. So I think it's um, uh, it's not one of those things where you sit down and read it, but it's one of those things where uh, I know I do, and I, I think it would be helpful for a lot of people to periodically just take it off the shelf, read a couple of uh, a couple of quotes, and uh, try to recharge yourself in looking at what sort of the father of internal medicine uh, was thinking and how he sort of envisioned the profession. I have not I have not read any of that before. Is it? Is it something you can get as an ebook, uh, or is it a, is it like a giant tome that we that I need yeah. to keep on my bookshelf? 
No, it's actually a regular size book. I had, I honestly don't know if it comes as an ebook. I've never I've never yeah. looked at it. Uh, we actually give it to people sometimes, sort of uh, in an honorific way. Uh, just uh, if they've done something uh, nice or good, or if uh, you're honoring them for some something. But it's really nice. Oh, so th- it looks like it's available you. through through Kindle here. Uh, it's like twenty four forty nine or so. But paperback anywhere from eleven to twenty seven dollars. Thank you, you Stuart. I think <laughs> just for what just for you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> just for you, Matt. Thanks, Stuart. Okay. That's... Can be available as an audiobook for a while, though, so just have quotes right at him randomly. <laughs> there there you go. <laughs> Paul, did you want to ask anything? Sure. Yeah. Well, while we're keeping this reversal going, I'll ask one of Stuart's favorite questions. But what is maybe the best advice that you ever received as a learner while while going through medical education? As a learner, um, I think that depends on what level. Uh, if you mean as a medical student or as uh, a general clinician, I've gotten some good advice. Let's go. Let's go, medical student. Uh, as a medical student, I think the the one thing, and actually, I've translated this into asking uh, students or, or recommending this to students. Uh, I had uh, an older. Uh, mentor tell me one time that that the best way to learn medicine is to always think a step ahead. Uh, in the case of a medical student, always think a year ahead. So say you're a third year medical student, uh, you're asked a question on rounds, you're asked for an assessment, you're asked for a, a plan. That's fine. Uh, most people can feed that back, but take it to the next step. What would What would your response be if you were an acting intern? What would your response be if you were a, a second year resident. And this translates all through training. So if you're a, an intern and you're asked the management question, uh, what would you do if you were a supervising resident? Or what would you do if you were the attending in this case? Uh, and that's a, a, I've always taken that to heart because I think it really pushes you to think beyond just simply feeding back what you think is the right answer. It makes you sort of expand the way you, you're viewing the care of, of your patients. That's great, thank you. Gina, did you want to ask anything? Sure. So, you know, as a person who's had, I think, a lot of different careers, do you have any advice on maintaining good work-life balance? Ooh, that's a good question. (laughs) Um, That's a really hard one because I think it's sort of of, um, a very personal uh, decision you make. I do think, and, and this actually kind of plays off of a, a off of a, a sort of a quote in the Osler book that medicine is a is a jealous mistress. I mean, it, it, it <laughs> wants everything from you, and I think that medicine is the same way. There's always another patient to see. There's always another conference to attend. There's always another talk to prepare, and I think you you need to consciously decide what's necessary and what's important, and that needs to be sort of the key for your balance. And that that will change over time. Uh, I, I look at the work-life balance I had when my son was much younger uh, and how much harder I worked at it at the time. But even as you get older and you have fewer, say, childcare uh, commitments, you, you still have to make that room for yourself and for your personal life. And so it's really hard to have a general statement, but I think that always has to be something that you're processing and working on. I think it's good that we're just nowadays actually talking about this sort of thing because probably from years or decades of not talking about it, I mean, 
I'm growing up in a time where it has been talked about, but it sounds like everyone's a lot of clinicians who are older than me are saying it's so refreshing that we actually talk about these things now because in the past it wasn't really talked about. And that's true. I mean, I'm old enough to have trained in a time when you didn't ask for time off uh, that was considered, you know, weak. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was great resentment if if uh, somebody was away or was taking time off or had some other obligation that required that you work harder yourself. So it's a big cultural shift, but I think a really, really important and a really, really good one. Stuart, did you well, have I think a- it's, yeah, I kind of did. It's more of a, a flip side. I think, I think we do need to be careful about, about the pendulum swinging too much the other way where we, you know, want to inundate ourselves with all these all these extracurricular activities and say, hey, you know, I, I got to worry about you know all this feng shui, all, everything else going on. It reminds me of this this episode from Scrubs where JD gets his interns the first day, and Elliot gets her interns the first day, and Elliot's like, you guys got to be here at five thirty, round on your patients, get everything ready to go, and all of JD's uh, interns are like, hey, uh, JD, do you mind if I show up at nine o'clock? He's like, yeah, it's fine. Uh, do you mind if I show up at ten? He's like, yeah, it's okay. And basically, he shows up and there's nobody nobody there because he's allowed them to just go pursue their other life things and they've you know they didn't prioritize i think we need we do need to prioritize medicine but also understand that we have to have margin well i think the framing of of the whole discussion is important too kind of you know like the same way that we talk about compliance versus adherence so you know now that we're saying work-life integration as opposed to work-life balance because i think about this a lot if you put work and life in opposition to each other or if they're antithetical then you're going to be miserable because work is a significant portion of your life so i i think Thinking about work as part of your life and making it as meaningful and joyous as possible has to be part of the conversation. I know this is not the point of this episode, but I I, I just think about this kind of stuff all the time. But you are I... the one who replied to my Twitter feed and said that if you <laughs> love your job, you never work a day in your life, <laughs> which is why I'm becoming a massage therapist. Yeah. And I mean, I think one thing that I, I think a lot of recent graduates overlook is that, you know, just because you're choosing your first job isn't going to be your career interest for the rest of your life. And so, you know, you sort of... Um, you know, you gear up a little bit depending on your career interests, which may also be related to your personal life interests too at the time. And so I feel like there's a lot of shifting of energy, a lot of time in career. And that's sort of what I was getting at when it comes to medical education. Mm-hmm. Both of them had difficulties with work-life integration. And when we addressed that, then their board scores improved. You know, I wanted to pull out all this documentation on like micro analytic protocol method, looking at like how to improve the test scores and blah, blah, blah. And it just came down to what's going on at home. You know, that really has changed the way that I approach my struggling learners, learners, whether it be a medical student or a resident, I want to know what's going on with you first. And if I know what's going on with you first, it helps to bring the context, what's going on with you at work. It's a lot like meeting our patients where they are. It's the same thing with learners. Right, right. I think I think this is a great discussion, but we should definitely move on to the to the main event here. I think the first question, Phil, that I wanted to ask is, what is something in medical education that recently surprised you or something that you recently changed your mind about? I don't know if there's any one thing. I think what has really impressed me over my career, uh, and, and increasingly so as time goes on, is just how much the medical education process has changed. I mean, I when I went to medical school, it was the the typical historical lectures all day, go home, study for six hours at night, take your exams every so often. Uh, and that was really pretty much medical education. Uh, and now you 
uh, see you know, flipped classrooms. You see uh, people with uh, who do have lectures and they're speeding through them one and a half to two times the the regular speed. Um, and and along with that, I, I, the question is: Does form follow function, or does, does function follow form? Are people learning differently, and that's why the technology is is changing, or are people learning differently because the technology is different? And that's a, a little bit of a perplexing question to many of us. Uh, what has become extremely clear is just how different current trainees' learning habits, preferences uh, are than they used to be even five years ago and even 10 years ago. And that's been challenging to keep up with that curve. Is there something you th- that, that current learners are doing now that you think is, is a mistake compared to the way things were learned in the past? I'm not sure you can term them a mistake suggesting they're right or wrong. I think there are aspects of it that I think can be problematic. Uh, and I could give you a, a few examples and, and this may come up in some of the discussion later. Um, I think the, the biggest mistake that a lot of younger learners make, and I'm not to say it's a mistake, but I think they're, they're very educationally task oriented. Uh, tell me what I need to know. They don't really necessarily want to know more depth than what they need to either take care of the patient or answer a question correctly on rounds or to pass a test. Now, that's nothing new. That, that's been around for, for years and years. But I, but I think the, 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 the bad part of it is, is that if, if that really becomes your primary focus, what you fail to do is you fail to build a, a, a more robust uh, set of knowledge structures without getting too far into the into the learning psychology. It's okay to learn facts, but particularly in disciplines like internal medicine, if you're really going to be good at this, you have to have a really expansive fund of knowledge. It has to be linked together. You have to be able to pull from all sorts of different pieces of knowledge and clinical experience you have. And unless you go into it beyond looking for how to just answer a question or um, name a drug or things like that, it becomes very difficult to, to, to become good at doing that. It sounds like, so it, if they're not doing questions and they're not just reading, it's it's essentially being in the hospital, being around patients, seeing cases. Is that what you're, you're saying? So, so I'll give you a really good example. I, I think, and you see this with things like, uh, you know, uh, MKSEP, and you see this with how, how students study for clerkship exams. They, they, and again, I'm speaking in generalities here, but, but many of them, they, they don't like to read things. They like to do questions. And while that can be a, a very key and essential part of learning, uh, there are just some things you need to study, uh, that you need to study more broadly, because uh, having written thousands and thousands and thousands of questions, it's really hard to cover an entire discipline just by answering questions. Mm-hmm. In the olden days, and this is how things have flipped over the years, if you look at MixApp and how it was initially developed, it was actually initially developed um, as an assessment program, but the way people would tend to use it, in what used to be termed the syllabus, which is now called the text, people would read that and then assess themselves by taking the questions or doing the questions. What's happened now is everybody does the questions, and if they can't answer the question correctly, or there's something about the question that they aren't sure of, then they go to the text. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the Nijam 
plus, it's a very similar concept. It's primarily question-based, and then you, you move to references or other sources uh, to sort of get more in-depth knowledge. And that's been a, a fairly significant change, not necessarily bad, but I think a lot of people really tend to look toward questions to be their primary study source, and that doesn't always provide you the depth and breadth that you need. I had gotten some in, some advice when I was, I guess, early on as a learner uh, about kind of picking a textbook resource that you're going to continuously go to, and that'll be kind of the core of your knowledge. And then you can go to the primary literature, or if that has some, if that has some gaps in the knowledge, you can go to different resources from there. And of mm-hmm. course, doing questions is always part of the the modern day study plan. Is that is that something that you would recommend, like picking a resource, one resource to know well, and then kind of branching from there as you need to? Yeah, it, back in back in the day, you picked one of the major textbooks of medicine. Harrison, mm-hmm. Cecil's, um, uh, and the like, and of course, those are those are were our tomes, the the huge books mm-hmm. that that you you reasonably can't study from them. They're great reference materials, but everybody sort of had a preferred reference that they went to, and then you built on that by like what you're saying is finding other ways to study and coupling that with with questions. Um, I don't think people do that as much as they did before. I think what what I see people doing uh, increasingly so is they really rely on questions, and because there's so much stuff out there, they'll use a whole variety of sources to to study. And it's kind of interesting. People will use point-of-care resources like UpToDate or Dynamed uh, Plus, and they'll use those to study, even though that's really not the intention of those. And there are just huge numbers of questions out there. Many of them are free. Um, their quality can be somewhat marginal. Um, others you can subscribe to, and they're actually quite expensive. So what you see is you see a lot of people uh, with a really broad-based approach to doing this, and sometimes it can be a little bit scattered. I'm not sure there's a perfect method for any one person because everybody's learning style differs, but some people you ask them how they study for things, and they really can't tell you. They just do stuff. And so <laughs> So it's less intentional than than it might be. Yeah, I mean, this is a major source of anxiety, especially for second year medical students who, you know, receive advice from other students who may or may not be an expert at, in, in studying, you know, based on their own methods. And then also from, you know, upper year students who recommends, you know, micro made ridiculously simple or pathoma. And it's just, they have so many options that it just seems like it's such an anxiety provoking experience to figure it out early in second year, you know, and then they also feel the time crunch because they're studying, you know, they're getting closer to studying for boards too, and figuring out how to incorporate board studying and with second year. So I'd be curious to hear if you have any suggestions on how to try things out early and quickly to figure out, you know, what works best for the learner. I think one of the most interesting observations is that uh, if you look at, uh, I spent a long time as a clerkship director, and I think most clerkship directors have a good sense knowing the curriculum, which is fairly standardized across clerkships. This is even true in, in the residency programs, have fairly good ideas of how to study, what sources to study from, and, and things like that. What is so interesting is just the absolute power of the student grapevine. And won't listen to what the clerkship director or your senior residents or faculty. So they'll do, they'll they'll 
really go do what the fourth year said really worked for them. And that may not inherently be wrong. The only problem is, is that they're really trying to fit somebody else's learning style onto their own. And that doesn't necessarily always work. So it's really interesting to sort of see how people decide to use what they use to study. I think that, so if you had to, if you had to give, if a third year student, uh, let's, let's first take a medical student. If they came to you and asked, what should I be doing to prepare for my third and fourth year of internal medicine? Is there, is there some, what would you tell them they should be doing as like maybe a study plan? Well, I mean, obviously uh, a little skewed here because uh, we produce a, a, a textbook, uh, which is I Am Essentials, specifically for the third year clerkship. This is done in conjunction with the um, clerkship directors in internal medicine, uh, as, and it's also based on the SGIM, the Society of General Internal Medicine core curriculum for the clerkship that was developed a long time ago, but it's been revised several times. And what's good about that is that it really covers the base curriculum in internal medicine. It's less helpful for studying for things like step two, uh, but it will cover the content of internal medicine that's on step two. But I think to, to get to your question, I, I think, and, and there are many other study resources available specifically for the clerkship, and I think it's really important for them to pick one. Essentials is a good one just because we know what the curriculum is, but most people will use step up. Most people will use blueprints. There, there are a number of them out there. And they're all okay. I mean, they're all okay for, for doing what they're doing. And then uh, couple that, obviously, with their clinical work and also with questions uh, as, they, as they proceed through. And then move progressively into higher level types of things. When you get to be an acting intern, you need to start moving into things that you'll be using when you're in residency. That's a lot of that working a year ahead right. that I was mentioning before. I like I like the pocket medicine book. Um, mm-hmm. It's I it's I think it's Mark S Sabatine from uh, it's from MGH and that that book I find is pretty a pretty complete book. It's it's bullet pointed. So if you, if you like to read narrative, it's probably not for you. But it's I find it's like a good. It's almost like point of contact as well. It's hard to just kind of read it cover to cover, but it's a good a good resource. And if you know that well, and then you're actively engaging in your clerkship and you're doing questions, uh, that was kind of my study plan as I was going through things. And that had worked fine for me. I'm not sure if uh, any of our other panelists want to say anything about what they did. I think point, I think pocket medicine is more a, a reference than it is a, something to study from, but I, don't know. I, I, think, I think the important thing is a medical educator is, and this again, depends on where you're what level of learners that you're working with. And if you're like some of us who are in academics and worked across the spectrum, I think it's really important as an educator to know what's out there and to know some of the nuances of what's out there uh, and to be able to recommend to your learners what in your best judgment you think would be a good way of of approaching this. Um, There's so much stuff out there and as I've said before, there, what to do is not intuitive. And without any guidance from educators or older mentors or other physicians, they're kind of on their own. And there's so much out there that I've seen a lot of students and residents even struggle because they just don't know how to approach studying, and particularly internal medicine, this volume, this massive volume of content. It's actually really difficult. 
Yeah. One of the things I, I do with like a, a struggling intern or, or struggling second year is I, I tell them, for example, let's say they don't know how to treat, I don't know, pneumonia. I have them, you know, cognitively think about presenting how to how to treat pneumonia to someone else, to like a medical student or to an intern, and then present that to me. And then I want to know what, what sources that you use, which ones worked for you, which ones didn't. Well, which ones worked for you, consider using those or keeping that in your back pocket for other disease processes. And then we'll talk through that and see if that works for you or not. Because we have to individualize, especially with this, this millennial generation, how they learn. Because it seems as though the way that they learn is so divergent that I can't give one answer at all, ever. No, and I think that I think you, that's exactly right. That that's why I think as educators we need to know what's out there, know the strengths and and weaknesses, and how you might be able to piece some of these together to meet an individual student's or learner's mm-hmm. uh, you know learning style uh, and learning needs. And I think the point you made is just incredibly important. You're, you're doing educational diagnosis, uh, and you right. need to help match. A student's learning style with with what they could potentially find for them very successfully. That's probably the biggest mistake I see is people trying to use something that is completely opposite of the way mm-hmm. they really prefer to learn. Yeah, that, that's something I learned from something called the microanalytic protocol method. I don't know if you've ever heard of that before, I've where you diagnose it. the you diagnose the learner, find out what the deficiency is, and then you use that to kind of direct and guide how you intervene. So come up with a treatment plan, essentially, just like you would with, with a patient, like Gina was saying earlier. And, and that's, a, you know, in talking about sort of dealing with learners who, who are struggling, uh, I, I think that is really key. I think that's, that's the, the perfect point. I, I guess I don't see uh, working with students, residents, other people, uh, even more advanced who have issues uh, in terms of learning, any different than diagnosing an internal medicine problem. They're very complicated. You take a history. You really don't need the physical for this, but you <laughs> do a differential diagnosis because it's extremely important to get a feel for what the underlying issue is mm-hmm. before you can do anything to potentially address it. It's it's way beyond just read more. Can, mm-hmm. can you give an example, like a real-world example, de-identified Let's say you were working at Cashlack and you happened upon a struggling learner and and what was what's a case that you you know something you see relatively common that could help our you know maybe either a learner or an educator that listens to the show. That's a good question. I, I, again, it's it's very dependent upon where you are in the learning process. Uh, what I, I I'll take a good example when I was a clerkship director, you would see a, a fair number of students who would come to the clerkship. Uh, do brilliantly in the basic sciences. And when they get to the clinics, they really struggle. They struggle on the wards to pull the pieces together uh, of how to uh, pull key elements out of a history, physical, laboratory uh, uh, studies, and things like that, and piece together a differential diagnosis uh, and the like. they also struggle on the types of questions that they first encounter for the most part in the clinical years, which is the clinical vignette and laboratory studies and physical exam. And then uh, you're given some options to pick and they tend to be clinically based options. And so what you'll see is you'll see people who are extremely brilliant and they are very good at basic sciences, but they're very much used to that straight analytical 
ask me a question and I will answer it. And they are less able to take uncertainty, take pieces and weigh and balance them uh, one with the other and come up with a come up with a, a, a differential and a diagnosis. Uh, we sometimes term that as sometimes two and two, two plus two equals five. Uh, and that's a very difficult, uh, it's a very difficult uh, problem to treat. And we have some ways, you know, people have done, uh, dealt with this in a number of ways. So for example, you'll take uh, a question, uh, just a, a typical uh, MKSAP type of question it has a STEM and uh, all the information in the STEM and some clinical data and then the options. And what you do is you you don't have them actually do the question. You have them read the vignette and you have them identify the key features. So what's important in this? Tell me, read this vignette. You have a 32-year-old man who comes in with joint pain and he's also having some abdominal symptoms. Um, his exam is pretty much normal. Uh, what in this clinical vignette is important and what's less important and then have them talk through this and think through this and explain how they're getting from point a to point b even before you ever ask them the question and you have them try to figure out a differential diagnosis and sort of see if they're able to make these connections again it's very it's very difficult to correct issues like this on the other hand that gives mm -hmm. you some insight into where they're having some some difficulty and then farther yeah. along you have people do this practice on their own and try to come up with what they think is a reasonable differential and what is a possible diagnosis even before they ever look at right. the options and th those are actually the first few questions on the uh, self-regulated learning microanalysis form that i have here that mm -hmm. you, you, it was almost verbatim here <laughs> and uh, this, this is this is what, what what we use to go through questions with uh, our struggling learners, especially medical students, if they get referred to me, mm -hmm. um, or sometimes residents. But I mostly deal with medical students who are failing like step two or step one, and then we'll we'll talk through it. But it's very similar to what you're talking about. But I think that's an important point, though, because I think when we're in our perfect utopian medical education system, it's very hard to do what you guys are talking about. I mean, I think for the general practitioner who's on floors for one to two weeks or the, you know, the outpatient general medicine person who, you know, has a student in clinic for a week, it's very hard to have enough time to fully assess mm -hmm. this. And um, it's important that I think you both speak about this is sort of a referral system for mm -hmm. um, faculty members who identify perhaps somebody who needs additional attention or a program or something of the sort, because I think, you know, the general audience who is educating does not know how or have the mm -hmm. time to fully assess the way that you guys are discussing. And right. so I, I'd be curious to hear how both of your institutions sort of handles a student and if you have experience with it, a resident who perhaps has medical knowledge deficits, because I almost feel like that's the most remediable <laughs> professionalism so much harder but you know that's a whole other topic let me take a step back and and sort of uh address the question or the or the comment about uh the utopian medical education world because you're exactly right this is this is probably at least in my world one of the the biggest things we struggle with because the way our system is structured there are a core of really more hardcore medical educators who deal with learning issues and educational issues. But the vast majority of, of learners' time is spent with clinical people. And these are people who 
are not trained medical educators. They are probably very good medical educators, but they don't necessarily have the the training skills time mm-hmm. uh, uh, to really sort out what's what's wrong with with a learner, what's what what problems they're encountering. And, and that's always a challenge because you have to decide when you're going to pull somebody out of that and actually address them more as opposed to just having them continue to get to get negative feedback. Uh, in response to your other one, I, th- I think what's interesting uh, about the medical knowledge, uh, where I really focus particularly when you get to the resident level or the more advanced student level, I think, and this is just an observation, and, and again, with the caveat that so much of this is is personalized, People in clinical situations, particularly in internal medicine, teachers, I think, uh, tend to overemphasize facts. Mm-hmm. And so they throw right. facts at people. They throw, this is the latest treatment for this. This is what we do in this situation. And they don't really get that what you're trying to do is you're trying to develop a body of knowledge mm-hmm. in people. So you're trying to help them develop what people will call cognitive structures, uh, uh, what people are called uh, um, knowledge representations, disease representations, illness scripts. In other words, the, right. the bigger the bigger concept of how we actually process information in internal medicine. And if you don't have those mental frameworks on which to hang the facts, they just kind of go out the other ear. And I think that's what I see when people get to a little bit more advanced level and they just have these knowledge deficits. It's probably not that they really can't understand the facts or the physiology or uh, the pathophysiology. They just don't know how to put that knowledge and that information into a form where they can access it and use it clinically. And that can be a big problem as well. But I think if you can get a sense of that, then you can help people start to uh, fix that. Uh, But it's hard. It might be just pointing it out to the person, you know, that that's part of their deficit. Then they can be aware of it, and at least, you know, once you know the problem, at least then you have a chance of trying to work at it. They and might not even know their problem. And they're very simple things, if that's the case. Uh, a lot of times, just thinking aloud. Uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm, right. I'm, you're attending, and we have this patient, and uh, you know, we go through all the facts and and the exam and and the like, and we talk about a differential diagnosis and this is what the diagnosis probably is. And mm-hmm. the learner is staring at you like a deer in the headlights. Mm-hmm. It, what's very helpful is to simply explain how you got from point A to point B. Uh, and, and how did you balance things? How did you pull knowledge out and put it together in this way so they can see how that process works? Yeah. When I sit down with a struggling learner, one of the things I tell them, so I'll pull out a map and I'll say, hey, Here's a map. Here, here's you know, here's point A. Here's point B. Tell me how to get from point A to point B. And they'll say, well, you know, turn left here. You go down here. You go up this way. I said, oh, okay. Now, teach me how to read a map so that I can get from point A to point B. And they, it, it kind of flips it, right? And so I say, when I when I'm sitting and talking to you, I, I see that you're having a hard time. I'm see I see that you're having a hard time um, answering on on rounds, maybe in the clinic. What I want to teach you how to do is I want to teach you to read a map the way that I read a map. Maybe it'll help you. Maybe it won't. And maybe you can see how I cognitively think through my differential diagnosis, my problem list, my assessment, my plan, my impression, et cetera, whatever you want, whatever terms you want to throw out there so that you can see how that I read a map. And maybe that'll help you to read a map so that you can teach someone else how to get from point A to point B. It's it's almost akin to, you know, give a man a fish. He'll 
he'll eat for a day. <laughs> Teach him a fish, and you'll have a he'll eat for a lifetime. You know, it's so funny because the best advice I got as an educator was that your best and your worst resident will always order the same amount of tests. And what your job is, is to understand, is have them to understand why they're ordering the test and to explain to you why they're choosing what they're choosing. And it might be a a knowledge deficit, for example, um, or it may be that they've already gotten to the point where, you know, they can, you know, weed out some unnecessary tests. Nelson, let me put this out to the group. Just. I, I think one of the, the struggles with medical education, and maybe I'm wrong about this, and maybe I'm just projecting, but I didn't get into this job thinking I was going to be in medical education. Like I was going to take care <laughs> of patients or maybe stare at an electrophysiology monitor and ablate stuff. Like I, I didn't realize that I would be doing this now. And so now I'm here and I care, but I'm just wondering sort of what resources are available to be better as an educator. We've talked about a lot of resources for students, but where can educators turn to to update their learning, their teaching techniques and sort of what what's kind of out there to, to get better at this job? Because you don't get a whole lot of training getting into it, and then you find yourself there, and um, you should probably be good at it. That's a, that's a really great question, and it's, a, and it's a tough one, because so many people are thrown into, this, as you're alluding to, they're thrown into this teaching role uh, with very little preparation. Uh, I, you know, I, I knew I was going into academics. I don't think I realized that my whole academic focus was going to be medical education when I first started, so I had a lot of ground to make up as well. I think the um, there are, as opposed to what there used to be uh, years ago, there are a lot of resources out there that are basic. Um, I mean, even if you look at what ACP produces, we have the Teaching Medicine series of books, and this um, there are books in there uh, in terms of uh, teaching at the bedside, teaching in the hospital. Uh, there's a newest newer one on uh, uh, teaching clinical reasoning. Uh, that's not a pitch for these books, but those things are available. Those types of things are available for people who really want to uh, want to learn some of the basics, uh, even if you're not well schooled and have a master's degree in medical education. I think the other source that I've found so incredibly helpful are um, resources associated with professional groups. So, for example, uh, I was heavily involved in the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine, which is the umbrella organization of the five groups that uh, administer internal medicine education in the in the U.S. and Canada. And so, uh, I was very involved with the clerkship directors group. And this annual meeting, there are people there who talk about teaching, talk about evaluating, talk about how to remediate uh, uh, issues with students. Uh, the program directors have similar things. Uh, the fellowship directors have similar things. So that's a, just an, a great source. Uh, SGIM uh, at their meeting has some content along those lines as well. I think what's particularly valuable is, is that we're all in the same boat. We're all uh, internal medicine educators. So I think we're all dealing with similar people and similar issues in that and that collective knowledge and wisdom really can help you as a medical educator. I I think this has been a great discussion, but for interest of time, I think we should start to wrap up here. And I, I always ask our guests for some 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 take home points for the audience, just a couple pearls to leave them with. I think the biggest take home point that I have gleaned from my career is is that medical education never stops. Uh, we are all students and we are all learners throughout the course of our entire lives. Uh, that's a dichotomy that I think we think that once you get out of residency, you're done. Mm-hmm. But uh, y- you see people fall into 
patterns where they stop thinking, they start doing and just do without really thinking and analyzing and continuing that learning process that they spent so much time with in the first part of their careers. So I think it's just a, the big pearl to me is, is that even at my age, I work very hard at keeping up the learning, keeping current, uh, learning new things and not falling behind. Because I think that's just really critical to practicing good internal medicine. Thank you so much for your time. It's been, I think we could have talked for a very long time. <laughs> so well, I hope this, I hope this was helpful and I hope this is what you were kind of looking for. It, exactly. It was exactly what we were looking for. I know we didn't get to like all the questions I had, but the discussion kind of just naturally went to some places that I found interesting. So we didn't even talk about mix app. So <laughs> yeah, we talked, you know, a little a bit, little bit. A little that, bit. that is perfectly fine. Yeah. That's yeah. No, this is a lot of fun. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll maybe in the future we'll do a part two on, uh, on medical <laughs> education. Cause I know there's, there's endless things to talk about. Yeah, there's a lot, but, uh, yeah. really appreciate your, really appreciate your interest. And I am truly honored by the, uh, by the invitation. Well, thank you for coming on. All right. Thank you. Good night. night. I think that went pretty well. That was, that was good. I liked it. Yeah. I, uh, Uh, I, I, I actually, I never thought about like, like, um, looking at learners and trying to diagnose them. Like I diagnose a patient. Like I I really feel like that's that's a whole next level that I now need to try to get myself to. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing <laughs> you sure a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find Yucky. show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You should also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you'll get a free PDF copy of the show notes, which are expertly done by The Curbsiders. You can get that at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. And finally... Please send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And follow us on our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night. And I remain Paul Nelson Williams. Good night. Oh, hi, Gina. Oh, I'm Gina Maria Simoncini. Oh, hey, how you doing? Gina Maria. How you doing? That's so nice. <laughs>